Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Um, today, of course, we are absolutely delighted to have Anisha Rochild Dury, um, marginalized majority claiming our power in a post-truth America with Jenny Yang. Uh, Jenny Yang is a comedian, writer, actor, and President Obama's 2016 honoree as a White House champion for change for her leadership and storytelling. I was impressed. Um, Anisha Roy Chowdhury uh, is a writer and educator, a two-time Pushcart Prize nominee, whose work appears in N Plus One, The Nation, Mother Jones, Salon, Rolling Stone, and elsewhere. Um, but this is her first nonfiction book. My goodness, has it gotten so well received. Um, it's uh, also it's put out by Melville House, so it's also uh, like such a good publishing house, and it's such a beautiful book, um, just as a physical object. Um, but the, the reviews have called it daring, witty, delightfully personal, powerful, progressive, timely, deep, fresh, clear-eyed, bold, vital, stirring, yes. conversational, heartfelt, persuasive, <laughs> engaging, compelling, and brilliant. round of applause. Uh, hi guys, thanks for coming out. This is my last uh, stop on a, on a tour here, so I'm tired, but full of lots of warm, fuzzy feelings, and it's nice to see uh, some familiar faces in the audience too. Thanks for, thanks for coming out. Um, so I'm just going to start off by doing a little reading, a few excerpts from the book, and then I will hop into some conversation with the delightful Jenny Yang. Uh, who is Obama's favorite person, and uh, and then we'll uh, and then we'll open up for a few questions, and then do the whole book signing thing. If you have a book that you want to buy, like this one that you want me to sign, I'll also just sign other books um, in case you have other books you want me to sign. Um, so I'll just start off by reading from let's see a section called Default Objectivity. In grad school, I took a literature class with a focus on colonialism. My professor, Gitanjali Shahani, was always bringing primary resources to class, often jaw-dropping early texts from the British Empire. One text in particular stood out, Board's Illustrated Guide to People, published in 1542, during the nascent days of British Empire building. At the start of the first chapter is an image of a white male in his skivvies, armed with a pair of scissors. These, the author notes, but for the Englishman to make clothing from the fabrics of the world. Included at the front was a poem describing the guide's conceit. I am an Englishman, and naked I stand here, musing in my mind what raiment I shall wear. For now I will wear this, and now I will wear that. Now I will wear I cannot tell what. All new fashions be pleasant to me. I do fear no man, all men feareth me. I overcome my adversaries by land and by sea. The idea was that being a white male subject of the British Empire offered the privilege of neutrality. You could try on the ethnicities of the world, becoming a dark-skinned Moor with great lips and knotted hair, or a light-fingered Egyptian. You could try on something else because you were a blank canvas. You could become and do whatever you pleased because, as a white man, you were invested with no other innate qualities, except, of course, supremacy over anyone who is not a white man. 
I was reminded of Board's Guide when Justice Sonia Sotomayor was going through the Supreme Court confirmation process in 2009. She had come under fire for stating that being a woman and Latina influenced her perspective. I think the system is strengthened when judges don't assume they're impartial, she testified, but rather when judges test themselves to identify when their emotions or their experiences are driving their results. Senator Jeff Sessions of Alabama, now the U.S. Attorney General, agitatedly adjusted his glasses and responded, aren't you saying that you expect your background and heritage to influence your decision-making? You accept that there may be sympathies, prejudices, and opinions that legitimately, legitimately can influence a judge's decision? Sessions remarked, I reject such a view, and Americans reject such a view. I was troubled by that slippery slope between I and Americans that Sessions had traveled in a single breath. I molded over for days before I recognized why the statement had lodged itself like a splinter beneath my skin. Implicit in Sessions' reaction was a presumption that his perspective was objective and American in a way that Sotomayor's pers perspective was not. How impossible a situation. You are raised in a country where you're socialized differently, treated as other, and then chastised for acknowledging this fact. And how odd that Acknowledging that human beings are not inherently objective, that their perspectives are shaped by their experiences of the world, is so objectionable to Sessions. Here, Sotomayor was articulating the real work of approaching neutrality and objectivity. She was acknowledging her experiences and examining their impact on her perspective in order to test herself. This is the same kind of work required of any human being who strives toward self-awareness and self-knowledge. Sessions' response perfectly encompasses white privilege. The presumption that your subjective way of being in and seeing the world constitutes a uniquely objective perspective. We cannot discuss our received notions of objectivity without recognizing that they are commonly located in this default white male perspective. What we tend to think of as objectivity is actually a very particular subjectivity run amok. And there's a little footnote here that I will read. Sessions is also a vehement opponent of affirmative action, which strikes me as a powerful irony. The reality we live in is, by default, a robust affirmative action program for white men. <laughs> like most Americans, I was raised to be a white man. I read William Faulkner and Ernest Hemingway. I read F. Scott Fitzgerald and Charles, Charles Bukowski. I came to identify with the emotionally disengaged characters, the staccato sentences, the irreverent dirty old man voice. The books I read asked me to imagine the power I might have. I got women pregnant and then worried that they wouldn't get an abortion, tied me down forever when all I wanted to do was continue experiencing my freedom. I wrote poems about the absurdity of writing poems, enjoying the decadence of imagining my readers drinking in my disregard for them. Being likable, explaining oneself to others, these were not prerequisites of protagonism. I watched women move, their hips in dresses, their lips on glasses, their breasts heaving, all of it offered up to me, to enjoy, to consume. The fact that I was a brown woman was not something that seemed immediately relevant when I was younger. I moved through the world with the sense that I would have access to the same kind of power as the protagonists of the books I read and the movies I watched. Of course we all identify with white protagonists. They're almost always the heroes, the ones with the power to change things to affect things rather than simply be affected. As James Baldwin put it, you go to white movies and like everybody else, you fall in love with Joan Crawford and you root for the good guys who are killing off the Indians. 
It comes as a great psychological collision when you realize all of these things are really metaphors for your oppression and will lead into a kind of psychological warfare in which you may perish. And whether it be because you are female, brown, queer, or in any other way visibly other from white, able-bodied, cisgender, heterosexual men, there's gotta be a quick way to say that. It feels like a kind of violence when you suddenly have to reckon with the differences of the body you're in. Coming of age, in particular, constitutes a jarring emergence of double consciousness, of being forced to see yourself through the eyes of others, even as you're still trying to form a sense of self. During a summer trip to Florida to visit relatives, my aunt poolside remarked upon my 14-year-old form in a bathing suit. When did you get breasts? How big are those things? I felt ashamed, and not just because my body was suddenly a spectacle. I already knew it was. How big are those things? was precisely how I felt about the strange lumps of flesh that had sprouted from my body. They were separate from me. While I was deeply embarrassed by my aunt's commentary, there was an element of identification, of relating to her, pers her perspective. It seemed more of a farce to me that people could look at me and assume that this newly hatched female form was somehow me instead of something that had happened to me. And yet that is the presumption, that the general shape you come to take imbues you with certain female traits, to be accommodating, empathetic, emotional, sexual, but not too sexual. Our bodies become shorthand for a grab bag of assumptions, some of which we grow into, some of which we bristle against. My femaleness has always been something that seemed to fit me poorly, at turns an oversized garment I could not fill, or some skimpy rag out of which I spilled. Though I've already made a mistake by calling the femaleness mine, it's never felt like a thing I owned so much as a general shape I grew into that seemed to offer me up for public consumption. The phrase, gender is a construct, might strike some as academic claptrap, but ask any woman how they were treated before and after puberty, and you're well on your way to understanding not just the truth, but how fucked up that truth is. The extent to which the entire world and the way you must navigate it is irrevocably changed. Also at 14, I remember walking down the street with Kay and H, my closest friends, in the North Carolina college town where I grew up. We flinched when three men started catcalling us. Yeah, baby, look at that ass. I remember feeling bewildered and disarmed, and having a reputation as being the outspoken one, I felt vaguely responsible for doing something about it. But I did nothing. One of the most humiliating aspects of that moment was that in doing nothing, it felt like I had allowed them to do something to us. This is one of the most nefarious aspects of predatory behavior. It makes the target of the behavior feel complicit. You might be going about your business, and then someone who has more power than you demands engagement, the kind in which even your refusal does not always free you from, forcing you to play a part in a scene you had no interest in even auditioning for. A couple hours after the encounter with those men, my friends and I piled back into the car and started our drive home. That's when I spotted the men, still roving the sidewalk not far from where we'd encountered them. Wait, I told H, who was, who was driving, slow down. I rolled down the window, started shouting at them the very same things they had lobbed at us. Yeah, baby, look at that ass. <laughs> it was a humbling and educational moment because, of course, they loved it. <laughs> I, was, I was startled in my naivete. I had turned the tables, but the tables had not turned. I didn't have the language for it then, but this was one of the first times I experienced how my words would, would always be shaped by my appearance, how they would often be heard differently, 
how they would weigh, often weigh less, how the expectations of my femaleness would become a thing I would repeatedly have to explain, justify, respond to, contradict. Now I'm going to read from um, a section called On Complicity. After the election, my friend T told me her story about watching the Anita Hill and Clarence Thomas hearings. In 1991, Hill testified that Clarence Thomas had sexually harassed her while he was her supervisor at the Department of Education and Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. She said that Thomas had asked her out repeatedly and that when she said no, he continually discussed sexual topics with her in the workplace. Watching the televised hearings, T told me, gave her a strange sense of vertigo. So much of the behavior that Hill described, Hill was describing was what she had experienced years back when she had been working for a man who served as her mentor. He often made overtures that made her uncomfortable, turning the conversation to sexual topics, glancing at her body. But she still valued his experience and his guidance, so she found ways to live with it, minimize it. It never went too far, she said. But still, she was seeing the behavior differently in retrospect. While watching the hearings one day, she got a phone call from that same mentor. She hadn't heard from him in years. He was watching the hearings too, he said. He wanted to know whether what Thomas did to Hill was what he had done to her. This was the point at which T paused her story. She looked at me and shook her head in disbelief. You know what I did, she asked. I told him no. I told him it was fine. I reassured him. I've marched alongside T at a number of protests. I've seen her defend and advance the rights and voices of teenagers in the foster care and juvenile justice systems. As someone who is fiercely progressive and politically engaged, T struggled, as so many of us do, to understand how she could minimize her experience in that way. It's notable that 53% of white women voted for Trump, a professed sexual predator. What does it mean that these women either decided his behavior was reasonable, or that they somehow thought that this personal aspect of his life was separate from his politics? Gloria Steinem, in her memoir, My Life on the Road, writes about how she tried to dissociate herself from her mother when she was younger. Because she saw her mother as passive, meek, having struggled with mental illness, and given up a career as a journalist to raise a family. It was a stance she came to revise when she discovered, quote, that we were alike in many ways, something I either hadn't seen or couldn't admit out of fear that I would share her fate. It's a denial so many of us can relate to. We want to believe we aren't subject to the same forces that limit others' lives. We want to feel we're free to be and do anything we choose. Sometimes we become so attached to this heady narrative that we'll throw our true allies, and even ourselves, under the bus. It's frighteningly easy for so many of us in this country to empathize with those who abuse their power. After all, we, grow up, we all grow up to be straight white men until we're forced to recognize that we aren't. It's a tension evident in the fact that Time's 2017 person of the year was the silence breakers. All the women who had come forward about being sexually assaulted or harassed. The runner-up for the honor? President Trump. What better evidence of how we're wrestling with what power means and where it resides? And because uh, we should close on a hopeful note, <laughs> uh, I'm going to read from a section to a called Taking Back Our Narratives. I regularly teach storytelling to high school students. After a few weeks of brainstorming and practicing, they each perform a story from their lives in front of classmates and friends. 
It's instructive to see teenagers navigate balancing the truth of their stories with the awareness of how that truth might be received by their peers. Young woman, one young woman that I worked with wanted to tell a story of self-acceptance, of recognizing that she was more introverted than some of her friends and making peace with that realization. An important part of her story was relating the experience of losing a friend of hers to suicide, a friend who had gone to the same school she was currently attending. During dress rehearsal, she hesitated midway through her story, right when she began to describe her close relationship with a friend she had lost. I thought at first it was too emotional for her and reminded her that she only needed to tell the parts of the story that she felt comfortable sharing. She bowed her head and quietly came over to talk to me. I'm afraid they won't believe me, she said, her brows knitted in concern. Well, what won't they believe, I asked. That that's what he was like, that that's what our relationship was like. She was afraid, in other words, that her narrative would not be accepted because it wouldn't be recognizable to anyone else. I told her that this was precisely the beauty of her perspective. There is no objective version. Indeed, the only reason her story existed is because it was rooted in her subjectivity and experience. This perspective was a gift, a thread that added to the memories that other people had of that same friend created a stronger tapestry, a truer representative likeness of who her friend was. There is, there is a magic to focusing less on responding to expectations. It breaks a spell, which is perhaps simply the myth that we should all fall into one or two particular categories that our lives and stories must fit a mold in order to be legible to others. But it's the specificity of our identities and experiences that command the ears and hearts of each other. Human beings are incredible bullshit detectors, and listening to someone try to tell a story or truth that is not their own often strikes us on a gut level. Watching that young woman take the stage and tell her story was an experience that drove home how powerful we are when we fully inhabit our stories and ourselves. She was soft-spoken at the microphone, which only motivated everyone in the, in the audience to lean in, their bodies listing towards her. Apart from her voice, the silence in the room was absolute. We were all under the spell, watching her claim the role of protagonist in her own story. Like that young woman, hesitating to tell her story, we learn early on to adapt our narratives based on the people in the room. How much of myself can I share? At what point will what I share become ammunition used against me? So we soften our particularities. And as soon as we do, we give something up. Watching that young woman perform, I was reminded of the way James Baldwin struggled on the page and in real life with this question of how to push past expectations to reclaim yourself and story. In the 1961 interview, Baldwin tells Studs Terkel, all you are ever told in this country about being black is that it is a terrible, terrible thing to be. Now, in order to survive this, you have to really dig down into yourself and recreate yourself, really according to no image which yet exists in America. You have to impose, in fact, this may sound very strange, you have to decide who you are and force the world to deal with you, not with its idea of you. Part of what I've always loved about Baldwin is his ongoing commitment to complicating the conversation about the race debate. There are times where, listening to recordings of him debating folks, I've wondered at the way he seems to meander so far beyond the terms of the question at hand, yet keep you utterly transfixed. In his 1965 debate with Buckley, Baldwin is asked, is the American dream at the expense of the American Negro? Baldwin opens by reframing the terms, referring to the question as, quote, hideously loaded, 
and that one's reaction to that question has to depend on where you find yourself in the world, what your sense of reality is. He then pivots, saying, I have to speak as one of the people who have been most attacked by what we must now here call the Western or the European system of reality. What you're watching is Baldwin repeatedly refusing the narrative in the, in the question as it's constructed. He refuses to abstract his personal experience, to strip his narrative so that it would be more objective or palatable, in line with the way Buckley would like to discuss the politics of the Negro question. He understands that there is no politics without the person, and that it was the fact of his complex selfhood that was already inherently the most political prospect on the table. Here, then, is a model for how to push back. By surfacing missing narratives that give us a history that more accurately, accurate, accurately captures our power, by digging more deeply into our own narratives and reclaiming the complexity of them, by no longer walking the tightrope of fulfilling expectations, by refusing the single reductive option offered us and demanding another one entirely, by acknowledging the realities of the world we're in and in the, in the same breath, insisting that another one is not only possible, but necessary. And I'll stop there. Okay, I'm gonna just put the, the little camera uh, here now. That was awesome. Thanks, I loved it. Jenny. I loved it. I, loved it. I, I love that you also highlighted a bunch of the sort of more personal stories. Yeah. Right. Um, what I love about this book, I'm just gonna tell you, I love this book. <laughs> I think every single person needs to buy it and read it and share it and gift it because I'll be honest. Um, I needed to read it. I really did because it was such a great combination of your personal experiences but woven into exactly what is happening in our country right now and in a way that you bring in the facts but it's not too heavy with the facts and it's not it's just nice it's just right you know what i'm saying I, it's a good beach read guys <laughs> that's what she's trying to say basically no it's very real because I, i'll tell you this other than the fact that I needed to read it for tonight, because I did want to, because I want to like engage on the topics that you're talking about. After 2016, this is, I don't know, I mean, you're all are book people, right? Total book people. At every problem I have in my life, I have like five books that I bought for it, right? You're like, oh God, what do I do? And you're like, oh, maybe there's a book, you know? And what I did was after the 2016 election, I was like, what do I need to do? And I remember like looking at all the books, you know, I bought the Hillary book, the one that was like talking about what happened with the campaign, blah, 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 right? I did not touch that thing. I'm like, wait, we just lived it. I don't want to relive this bullshit with all the technicalities involved. No, this is not enjoyable. I am hurting, you know? I bought myself a $65 life-size teddy bear. That's literally what I did <laughs> after the elections, you know? And so I think it's in that context for me, as someone who loves books, and who has like a bunch of books that I've started and maybe haven't finished, that made this book and this read especially helpful, I think, for me right now. Um, you know, and I think we were talking earlier, I just wanted to start by talking about sort of how this book is helping me, <laughs> because why not? Personal is political. Um, anyway, I'm not making fun of that. Though, I mean it. But um, <laughs> uh, I, you know, I'm a stand-up comedian. I'm a former. Uh, I was formerly in the labor movement, and I left because I burnt out. And you know, the succubus that is politics um, drained me of my 20-something energy. 
and I decided I would uh, answer my calling uh, to be more creative, and this that turned into being a writer and a stand-up comedian. And uh, I also made digital video, so whatever, you can look it up. But last year, I would say 2017, I had all these plans, y'all. I had all these plans. I was like, oh my gosh, I, I just bought my equipment, you know, to do, make my own videos. 2017, I'm gonna like make a bunch of funny videos that are also really relevant. And then, you know, the elections happened. So 2017, literally, I made zero of my own videos. Like, and I am like a recovering overachiever. Like, I, I still did a lot of stuff. Angela can attest, I still did a lot of stuff. I just didn't make videos. There's a place in me that wanted to create, that wanted to make something, that just couldn't do it, you know? Because I was still reeling from understanding what was happening around us and what role we needed to play. And I think that's, so 2018 happened and I was like, you know what, Trump took enough of my joy. I'm just gonna come out, gangbusters, I'm just gonna make videos, so I did. But you know, there is still a part of me that still wonders what role do I need to play as a comedian or an artist, um, and just as a person, right? We all marched, that's great, right? But I think I wonder what, it, what will it really take for us to shift things? And what I appreciate about your book is that you're, it's so readable, uh, which is not to say it doesn't, it's not dense with content, it's so readable because it helped me to give me a little bit of that distance and perspective that I think I needed to weave all of these things together, which is what you really do. I love that you bring together, um, you know, I think if I could say what I think the main thesis is, right? So the idea is the marginalized majority means we are in the majority and we need to claim that, right? That we are not, we, we shouldn't be playing the defense by thinking that it is still this narrative of whatever, the white working class or whatever is the dominant narrative, that, that in fact, you know, America's values and needs, we hold them. In, in, in us as, as the marginalized majority. I think that's a very powerful concept. And I think, you know, amongst my, my friends and colleagues, we would talk about that. But I love that you really crystallize that in this, in this book and, and you kind of break down why that is true and therefore what we need to do. Um, and so um, I, I, what I really appreciated was be, being reminded as someone who used to be a professional activist, mm -hmm. you know, and you could argue maybe I am, but I don't even, you know, I'm a comedian. But, but you know, when I used to be a professional activist, that's all we talked about. You know, organizing is a methodology, you know, in labor organizing or community organizing, right? Some of you who are familiar, it is like a science. And I love that you reminded me that, in fact, we need to undo the narratives that we have been told around what it takes to make change. Yeah, I mean, the, yeah. the point is that a lot, of, a lot of the narratives that we've been fed immediately after the election are terrifying, right? It's like America has never been more divided, uh, we're screwed. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, I think you were saying, like, this is the book that you needed. I, I feel like I wrote the book that I also yeah. need. I mean, like, this, the book is sort of my journey through being terrified, but what I was more terrified of was, again, seeing these not, um, not a, these, are, these are common narratives that, that are perpetuated all the time in moments of political crisis. And uh, my own journey as a progressive journalist, uh, I kind of saw some of this happening during um, the eight years of Bush two. And so when Trump came around, I was like, I don't want us to, because what happened then is I saw a lot of friends and colleagues really kind of push back on their heels uh, and feeling defensive and like, well, we just gotta wait this thing out. And yeah. what happened in the wake of the election is that 
I was terrified, obviously, for a variety of reasons, but one of the things that scared me more than what Trump was going to do and what he was doing was the notion that the people who need to stand up and fight the most were already kind of counting themselves out and wanting to bury their heads in the sand. And, um, and so that's what kind of got me going down this path. Um, because in reality, like when I started doing the research, you know, this notion that we're, we're more divided than ever before, again, predicated on, a, it's just totally false, right? Like if you look at, you know, obviously there's just the fact of uh, Hillary Clinton got a lot more votes, but that aside, when you look at the core issues that the majority of Americans are concerned about, whether it's access to education, healthcare, really common basic things, um, vast majority of Americans want these things. Yeah. So in reality, I was like, yeah, America, ne we've never been more divided, but the divide is not between each other as the most notable problematic divide. The divide is between what the majority of Americans want and what the handful of extremists who have power right now are offering. In political leadership. Yeah, and it's like, yeah. when you look at it that way, it, told, it like I was like, oh, this is a completely different reality. This is a reality in which if we recognize that and push forward, it's a matter of time before that handful of extremists, and it's gonna take work, right? But it, it's much less terrifying and disempowering as kind of the narratives we were constantly being fed, yeah. one of which was also that protest is pointless. Yeah, and I love that too, is that, that you know you brought in some examples of, of social movements, right? Like the civil rights movement and other things that remind us that in fact it was those things that made change happen. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, you know, I, I love the example of Rosa Parks. I mean, I feel like if you talk, uh, you know, uh, in sort of, how, how do people get activated? Rosa Parks is a great example of that, yeah. that you mentioned, which is people just thought she was some old lady who just got tired when she was in her 40s, number one. Yeah. For some reason, people wanted to so weird. black women tired and old. Oh, they, just they just can't tell old black people are. So like, she was, I don't know, 15, 20, she could be 80. 80. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, uh, so, you know, she was in her 40s. She was long uh, trained. Yeah, the, a member of the NAACP. Yeah, yeah, with nonviolent organizing. And she was chosen, in fact, yeah. um, because she knew that she, uh, as a person uh, and symbolically, would be a good, a good, you know, kind of linchpin for what was supposed to happen, which is say, this is not right. How are you going to let a nice lady not sit in the front? Yeah. yeah, totally. And the way we get it, the way we receive that narrative generally in textbooks is like, you know, Rosa Parks, she was this grandmotherly figure, and like she was tired, and then all of a sudden everyone was like, oh wait, we should probably let everyone ride the buses no matter what. Yeah, you know, it, it kind of, because we collapse it and make it a two-dimensional story, erasing the fact that this was the kind of activism that was being engaged in by a variety of Americans. There were so many uh, Americans and black Americans who were uh, did the same thing as Rosa Parks and were arrested, and that never made headlines. Yeah. But that doesn't mean, and this is what I, I unpack in the book too, it doesn't mean that, that the, those weren't successful, quote-unquote, yeah. or that they, they, that they were failures, right? Yeah. It's just that the way that we tend to talk about protests is that if it doesn't lead immediately to some kind of change, then we're like, well, that was a waste of time, yeah, you know? Totally. Uh, and it's just kind of this deep-seated, knee-jerk reaction we have towards protests, but again, like, the fact that we all think of, like, civil rights movement, yeah, that needed to happen. It was inevitable, an important, you know, move towards real equality. But at the time, the people who were protesting, yes. the people who were freedom riders, the people doing the lunch counter sit-ins, they were not that popular. No. They did not have majority support in America. 
And we see the same kind of thing today, whether it's Occupy Wall Street or Black Lives Matter. The percentages are a little higher in terms of support, but it's still not a majority in terms of people who are supporting these explicit protest movements. So my hope is that you know, learning this kind of history, resurfacing these kinds of narratives and understanding that we're not kind of getting the full picture will hopefully enable us to be like, hey, maybe we can cut that window of time between like not understanding how important this is and being like, yeah, that's really important. We can like shrink it to like very little time. Um, yeah. yeah. No, I mean, I feel like we, we see that today, right? That, you know, um, here in Los Angeles especially, whenever there's a protest that blocks a freeway, oh, God forbid, freeway exit got blocked. You hear people commenting online, your friends are like, I mean, I'm totally supportive, but like, not during rush hour. You know, like, that's like, that's like usually what you hear, and it's like, well, no, duh, that's also the point, right? But, um, but this idea that, oh, it's just so inconvenient protest, but duh, like, it's like it baked into what it is, and that we have this, like, it's like, it's like th this idea that we're like, all of a sudden, everyone's like, oh yeah, we agree, the civil rights movement's good, right? Yeah, yeah. But back then, they were like, no, this was annoying. Who is this lady keeping my Why are you so impatient? Time? Why are you so yeah. impatient? But, it, I, you know, I feel like the analogy is like, you know, um, like like in high school, just to be petty, you're like, there's just one guy that like no one, you thought no one lies, and then like, all of a sudden the popular girl decided to take him out to homecoming, and you're like, oh my god, he's been cute the whole time. <laughs> That's how it feels. Anyway, <laughs> Yeah, we'll yeah. try that analogy another time. <laughs> we'll find another analogy. We'll find another analogy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one of the things that was useful for me when I was researching this book and also just like thinking about protests more generally is there are kind of two general um, types of, of protest or action, and one is expressive and one is instrumental. So instrumental is usually, you know, like we're protesting or doing this action because we want you to uh, overturn this law or something very specific, right? Uh, but then expressive encompasses something more broad. That can be an action that helps solidify, like like uh, the, the Women's March is a great example of an expressive action where you know there was obviously a variety of demands. There, there, weren't, there wasn't one clear call for something specific, but it was an unprecedented number of people in the streets around the world who were looking at each other and finding solace and solidarity. And, and um, I think the problem is, is that Especially in this country, there's a lot of, it's just we're so fixated on um, the instrumental actions that we lose sight of the fact that expressive actions, and often the two go in tandem, but if anything that looks more like an expressive action, we're like, what a waste of time. Um, and, and part of this, and I, I get into this uh, in the book as well, is the way that a lot of um, news outlets cover protest erases the importance of those expressive actions. So, you know, in, in the book I recount the many headlines that literally before, during, and after the Women's March were like, why the Women's March has already failed before it happened, you know, like, and why the Women's March is failing, and like, the Women's March failed. And it's like, at what? You know? Um, and, and, you know, something that got very little airtime is the fact that out of the Women's March, there, uh, there were a number of people, women, who decided to run for political office and then unseated, in many cases, GOP incumbents. So I mean, the, the, there's not like, it's not always a clear cause and effect, and oftentimes it's like a sort of domino effect, but because the way we tend to think about the stories around protest as like, you know, well, if it didn't go from X to Y within two weeks to two months, then it was pointless. What a waste of energy. Yeah. Uh, yeah.
Yeah, I mean, so it's like, we need to, number one, tell better narratives and stories about who we are, but also what the reality is of, of, of what's happening on the ground, right? And I think um, it, it just, to me, it's, that's the beginning of activism, or that's the beginning of organizing. It's not just a narrative. We have to tell the story that we are the majority. Yeah. Otherwise, it feels really helpless. Like, why would I even act? Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's what's really powerful about reading your book is that, like, you know, you really break down all the instances where we could be doing better, honestly. And, you know, it also made me, I know you, you, you gave, like, a hopeful ending about what that means, but I think when I think about concrete takeaways from the book, I think about we need to support independent media, right? There's ProPublica. Is that how you say publica? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I, sometimes I wonder if I'm over-ethnicizing like words. I mean, it like, sounds sexy if you're like, publica. no publica. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's just like the Spanish language. Yeah. Um, okay, I'm just telling a quick story. Uh, my, a friend of mine, a friend of mine went, was coming home from North Carolina and their friend was like, oh my god, I really like this fried chicken place. It was called Bojangeles. No, <laughs> that's what I jokingly call because I'm from North Carolina. Oh, no, they either call it Bojangles or Bojong. <laughs> anyway, it's like, what? You mean Bojangles? Anyway, that was like, <laughs> that was the friend over ethnic sizing. It's amazing. Anyway, um, right. she's like, I want to make sure I'm getting this right. Um, <laughs> Bojangles? Bojangles? Um, uh, so, anyway, uh, independent media, publica, publica. Um, and then there's this idea around like, what do we do in the face of mainstream media who just insists on covering a horse race <laughs> and the judgment call around who wins or who loses, you know, example, women's sports. What, yeah. what can we do other than tweet our asses off ourselves, you know? Yeah, yes, yeah, support in yes. journalism for sure. Yeah. And then, you know, I think people are starting to understand, that there's starting to be a more visible gap in terms of like the narratives that are offered to us in terms of like, following the people who are in power versus following what Americans are wanting. So obviously, you know, all the polls uh, in the lead up to the presidential election, it's like, whoops, right? Uh, but then this continues even today. So, you know, in New York, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez won, which was amazing. And, but again, we got this whole bevy of headlines that was just like, whoa, totally unexpected, you know, total surprise. And uh, I, I, it, it's not that surprising at all. You know, because the fact is, she was speaking very directly to what Americans are concerned about and what they want in a very unapologetic way. Yeah. And something that I like about that story as well, as well about her her win, is that she went on uh, the late night Colbert show, and he was like, you know, how do you explain it? Like the polls had you weighed down. What's the deal? And she was like, oh yeah, I can explain that. So uh, here's the deal: the way that we do polling is usually we're looking at. Um, expected voters. Expected voters, yeah. Rather than, and so she was like, well, yeah, so we didn't focus on expected voters. We've got voters out who don't normally come out. Yeah. And again, in terms of like the conceit of my book, which is that we're the marginalized majority, we are the majority. If you look at the numbers, and if you're really into numbers, there are plenty in here, but if you're super wonk and want a lot of graphs and charts, read Steve Phillips's uh, Brown is the New White. And he breaks down how like just by the numbers, if we got out the vote and reached voters who aren't coming out, uh, especially among uh, more typically historically marginalized populations, um, we have we, we win. Easy we, win. We just win. Yeah, I mean, I was blown away by a couple of the numbers about how only about thirty percent of the of Americans 
were able to vote or something to that effect, mm -hmm. like a third. Yeah. And then of that, whoever voted, and then of that, whoever voted for Hillary versus Trump, right? Yeah. So that's already not the majority. And then, um, God, what was the thing that you were just saying just now? Uh, no, oh, I forgot it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, JK, I getting out, getting out the new voters, getting out the people who yeah, getting out the new voters. Yeah. Um, voter suppression. Yeah, there's voter there's suppression. Yeah. So we just we just have to talk talk about the real life needs, and it actually kind of works. I mean, honestly, right? Like that's yeah. how we just hit the ground. Totally. Yeah. yeah. And and I've been hurting to see, but again, like every time someone like this runs, yeah. It keeps being discussed as though it's an aberration, you know. Like I was, oh, I gotta look up her name. I wrote it down because I, oh, I keep forgetting for some reason. Oh yeah, Stacey Abrams, who's running for governor of Georgia. Yes. Total badass, amazing, and she's just like a black woman who's a fantastic storyteller and speaks honestly and like about her experience. And everyone's like, oh, <laughs> this is so crazy that she's connecting even with white voters, you know. <gasps> and and it's. Again, and a conceit that I talk about in the book a lot is that there's such a boogeyman of like identity politics as a thing that's going to divide us, yeah. uh, and and especially um, among the left. Yes. Anytime uh, there's a political, like a politically charged moment, there are like these people who crop up out of the woodwork. It's like they're just waiting for the moment to be like identity. We must leave our identities behind. What about class? What about class? Yes, Anne. Yes, yeah, Anne. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Can we do that? Can we hold two thoughts at the same time? No, we already know that. It's hard. It's hard. Yeah, it's yeah. bizarre. It's bizarre the way... And this guy's someone who used to work in the labor movement. And then I talk yeah. about my like, Asian-American identity and immigrant identity all the time. It's like, it's okay. We can do all of it. Yeah. Yeah, and that dichotomy between yeah. race and class is so absurd and also collapses the notion that like, well, first of all, you know, it's always like the white working class. We have to talk to the white working class. Yeah. And it's like, okay, well, but the working class is majority people of color, so let's just start there. But also the white working class is not this monolithic entity. You know, like, why are we lumping them all together in this way and separating them out from the working class people of color, yeah. which is the most age-old divide to, like, try to drive a wedge into uh, in terms of, like, people uh, being nefarious in power, you know, like that's historically what's been done. I feel like that's a lesson we're all learning right now in terms of talking about these multiple intersections, right? The concept of intersectionality. I wish there was a sh like fewer syllables to, to capture that concept um, that's more accessible, but that, you know, we- Both and? Yeah, that we could be both and. Yeah. And that, and that, you know, you don't say this thing is for women and, uh, people of color, yeah. that in fact, guess what? There's people of color who are women, yeah. and there are women who are people of color. And so there's these little things that we, we, we're kind of figuring out together, I think, in the age of social media, around how to talk about the sort of intersections of our multiple identities. Don't you think? I feel like yeah. those, those are the kind of conversations we're, we're having, and, and, um, and it's hard, and, and it's, does it feel comfy? Like, I mean, I get like, like this, this argument around like, okay, in this moving forward, if we're the majority, how do we organize ourselves, right? And I think we have to confront these types of rhetorical and argumentative divides that yeah. like, people use to, to separate us. We're yeah. so used to thinking of it as a conflict, that there's two yes. sides yes. to the story. And so we, I think we often come to the table already being like, well, I'm here defending, you know, women's rights, but, but, but what about class? And it's yeah. like, yeah, no. And, and I think what's really instructive is that when we look at protests and, and protest movements in history, they hinge on identity. 
You know, like when we talk about some of the most incredible and impactful change in this country, it is movements that are founded on identity that drew a variety of allies together. It wasn't just a single identity. Yeah. Uh, and it's often queer women of color who, if you scrape beneath the surface of what we're seeing in textbooks, those are the people who are at the core of these movements, which I think, like, I kind of knew that, but when I was researching the book, it was like, oh, no, but really? Yeah. And, uh, you know, obviously it's helpful to surface that history and learn that, but also just knowing that. It's like, oh, okay, so we should be, in terms of moving forward, we should be looking to these people who have been doing this work already and continue to be doing that work and join them, right? Be allies with them. Yeah. Um, and, and if we're at protests or we're at, you know, groups that are interested in, in taking part in actions and we aren't seeing diverse voices in the room, yeah. we know there's something wrong. Yeah. You know? So, I mean, not, which isn't to say you should stop. It just means, like, who do we need to get into this room yeah. in order to really uh, push forward for real substantive change? Yeah, I think a great example of that is Black Lives Matter. Um, you know, if you're familiar with sort of uh, community and labor organizing down here in LA, uh, the Bus Riders Union uh, Strategy Center, they've been organizing here forever, right? Making sure that MTA doesn't raise, uh, you know, the monthly pass all the time, you know, trying to make life more comfortable for, for working class folks. And, um, you know, when Black Lives Matter happened, and, and, you know, some of you are on the internet, right? So you know that sometimes there's this sort of like condescending argument around hashtag politics. Right, like, oh, just because you have a hashtag doesn't mean you're doing something, right? And I remember when Black Lives Matter happened, um, and I saw who was behind it, I was like, oh, see? But, because people were saying that about Black Lives Matter, but guess what? Black Lives Matter, the hashtag, was connected with on-the-ground people who have been organizing for decades. Like, Patrice, all the people that finally, yes, people got it right. You know, and it was the women's magazines, honestly, who got it right. Yeah. I'm trying to highlight who it was that really, right, led yeah. Black Lives Matter. There are these beautiful, you know, pictorials of, you know, Patrice and Alicia, and you're like, yes, these are the women who have been in the trenches organizing against police brutality, supporting working class folks, folks of color. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, yes, now that we have the toll of social media, so hashtag Black Lives Matter. But, you know, I think we, we have such a deep education that we need to have. Of all the people who showed up at Women's March, can you imagine, which is, you know, touched a lot more people who don't typically march, can you imagine if all of them got this level of sort of mass movement, kind of change, education, right? I mean, yeah. I feel like that's where we're at. We have to kind of do that, which makes me now feel like I, I have my marching orders. <laughs> As a standard Literally. comedian and a, and, a, and a storyteller. Which, by the way, I have a bone to pick. Go on. If you read into the book, which you will, um, you do, at fair amount of length, talk about the role of comedians. You do. It's true. Now, I, I just get, I, I did get a little quick background on you that you did, you have spent three years doing improv on a house team in New York at People's Improv Theater, whatever. I don't do it anymore. <laughs> why, are you trying, why are you trying to like not accept your history? Your no, 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 it's what? not like I'm trying to hide my yeah, history. It's just that, you know, I don't, I don't want, you I don't want people to be like, oh, she's a comedian. You tried stand-up. Why is she so not funny? Listen, you already talked <laughs> you, about you know, you've already talked about white, white men. You're not, you're no longer eligible to be on the New York Times editorial board. It so. is rough in the journey. <laughs> it is rough. So, um, so, uh, what's my point? So basically, you highlight the fact that there's different types of ways comedians can make fun of things. Yes. Right? But in fact, there is a difference between true satire or parody 
and uh, what you refer to as prestige, which is a reference to a, a, another theorist, right? Yes. Yeah. So, uh, you know, um, I don't know. I, I feel a little called out. But I feel but a little defensive. But see, Jenny, if you if you uh, took a step back from being so quickly defensive, then you would give me an opportunity to say, I think you're doing the right kind of thing. <laughs> what? Did you say what? <laughs> what? What? Say that again. Um, Jenny, you're doing the right kind of comedy. I mean, you feel better. Yeah, that's really all that was for. I just wanted to go be assured that yeah. I was not doing things that were toothless. But um, yeah, it's an analysis that I think is really important yes, comedy. Yes. Because like, the reality is that, you know, and, and the way that I, I look at it is exploring it through the lens of cynicism, right? So the earliest uh, origin of the term cynicism is uh, from ancient Greece and it meant a radical truth-telling. It meant speaking the truth in the face of power no matter the odds, essentially. Now when we think of cynicism, cynicism the way we practice it, it's like this savvy knowingness. It's like this attitude, uh, this refusal to be surprised or shocked when people behave, especially in power, incredibly poorly. Uh, and, and my concern there is that that then reinforces uh, this sort of slow, de not slow, now we're at a point of rapid degradation of the yeah. system, right? So that someone like Trump, who's a reality TV star, you know, who behaves exactly according to our most cynical expectations of someone in power, it just kind of goes hand in hand yeah. with that. And the reason I focus on comedy is because there, there really has been over the past few years a rise in terms of how we, um, how we, how news is mediated, how we consume it. And in some part, this is because uh, media has taken a bit of a nosedive. I think we're sort of finding our way back, actually, which we can, we can that's another conversation. Where? Another where are we finding ourselves back? We'll, we'll come back to that. But, but, but in terms of um, the, the comedy, there's been a rise in like, late night comedy shows. And what, what's been heartening to see is where, you know, when we had like Tina Fey doing Sarah Palin, right? It was amazing because she literally almost took verbatim quotes from Sarah Palin and then like, you know, clipped on some bangs and it was like, boom, satire. But then it started to get weirder and weirder when it was like, okay, now Sarah Palin's coming on the show. Yeah. Which, yeah. you know, Tina Fey talked about later and was like, I was, I did not want that to happen. Oh, really? Yeah. But I mean, that kind of thing ends up, it becomes a kind of like tacit support of this this kind yeah, yeah it, and it's really messed up. Whereas, you know, I think there is comedy now, especially in this like more second generation of shows, yeah. um, like Trevor Noah, Samantha Bee, um, John Oliver, like we're seeing, I think a little bit more of a shift towards that truth telling. And also to that like, not cynical laughing it off, but expressing outrage, and, and sometimes, and this is my favorite, when it's like encouraging people to do things, even if it's through a satirical, funny way of doing it. I mean, it was kind of brilliant when, um, on the Colbert Report, uh, when he had um, the guy come on and like, he created a super pack. Yeah. I don't know if you guys remember that. Yeah. And it was like, oh, you are, through your satirical show, you were exposing how gross it is to do, or how easy it is to do something so gross. Yeah. Um, but I felt like that was few, fewer and far between that kind of contextualized comedy, and it's happening more and more now. But I feel like I would really love everyone to be like thinking about that when they're seeing comedy, uh, because it, it, I think it really does do different things for us and inspire different kinds of energy. Yeah, I think if the, I think the words you might have used, I don't know if these are exact words, but is it 
is it numbing us or is it actually like you know instigating us or or agitating us yeah don't you think i feel like that's the difference it's like what is the art doing is it you know here's the thing sometimes i'm like a good escapist yeah. movie at the old cineplex well, yeah. the old cineplex, the old cineplex. <laughs> But I think it's like, yeah, I sort of, and what, this is what sucks is that we, we see ourselves as consumers. And, and in fact, we need to be not that, right? I feel like yeah. that's what it really is reminding me of is that like, we are, to be American is to see ourselves as consumers. That if what we consume and what we you know, buy is what, who we are, whether it's art or media. Yeah. And it's like, well, what does it mean for us to be actively engaged and responding to that. Right, and asking those questions that are often thought of as like dewy-eyed and naive, like what kind of, what do I think democracy should look like? What does it feel like? What is freedom actually? What You know, like we, we kind of discount these questions as being really like, well, I don't know, uh, they're, they're like that's for kids. Uh, but that's so problematic because I think what's happened is we've started to shift, and I, I talk in the book about an, a, a story, it's a conversation with my friend I think many people can relate to, which was uh, you know, during the primaries before the presidential election, it was I was having a conversation of Hillary versus Bernie with a friend of mine, and um, and she was like, I am super behind Bernie's policies, but I don't think he's going to win, so I'm going to support Hillary. And this was like the primaries, and she was already and and so I I feel like cynicism starts to come into the room when we are sort of thinking of ourselves as the pollsters. We're like, who's the most electable? And there, you know, that is a, that's a question that we should have. It's important to be somewhat practical and pragmatic, but I feel like we've moved so far in that direction, rather than saying, who do I support and why? Yeah. Who's going to fight for, you know, rights for everyone? Towards, like, you know, actual American promises yeah. that have yet to be delivered on, That's in many right. ways. So I, I just want to do a time check to see how much yeah. time we have, because I, I do want to talk a, a little bit more about what we can do, because yeah. it always feels better when you talk about such big issues, you know? Yeah. Um, so we're right at six. Might be a good time to start with the Q&A, yeah. right? Yeah, maybe we'll do Q&A. Yeah. Um, but just a quick, you know, a couple of things that, that you know, through this book, what has it made you think about in terms of what we need to be doing? You know, like, I, I'm not organizing with any group, right? Mm -hmm. um, I sometimes I answer the calls, so like make phone calls or texts or you know what I mean. Like there's all that that had to happen after uh, yeah. the elections, but you know, um, what do we do? Yeah, I mean, I think that I think we need to uh, really move towards, and a lot of people are already doing this, uh, moving towards recognizing that like this sort of level of civic engagement, it has to be something that we're doing every day or like a part of our regular lives and and i think the trick there i'm not you know i don't want to sound like uh you just gotta do the work you know put your big girl pants on but kind of do that but also like this should be fun you know like it's not it's not gonna be fun all the time but like we're talking about you know there are so many indivisible groups that have started up and i know many many friends of mine are part of them and like they have they have formed into social groups right they have formed into uh, and, and that's that's what it's going to take, right? We need to have our personal lives. Organize a group. Organize a group or join See, a group. That's how it feels, right? Like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> but that's the thing is, it, uh, protest and engagement needs to get a lot more fun. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, there's so many examples of that. Um, there, there's a book if you guys need need some uh, hope on the like concrete tactics and tools. Uh, called Beautiful Solutions. 
by a friend of mine, Andrew Boyd, um, where he's one of the editors. But it just compiles all it, like, so that hopefully we can start thinking about this as, um, yeah, and also recognize that these are pers the, the, the stakes, right? This is like, this isn't just like, oh, I gotta go do my work. It's like, uh, do you want healthcare? Yeah. Do you want to be able to retire? I do. I don't know how I'm going to, you know, be able to do that legitimately. Like, and and I feel like if we can start to bridge that gap of a gap of recognizing that the political realm is where we need to be seeking remedy. Yeah. Uh, that all of these GoFundMe's for people in our lives who have cancer. I mean, it's very lovely that there's this community, but it's so messed up yeah. that we are relying on each other in this way uh, because we need just basic, and it, in such a rich country, the fact that this is the reality is, is obscene. Yeah. Word. <laughs> um, the, they're Kamiela Ng in Hawaii. They need help making phone calls to turn people out if uh, that's something you want to do. K-A-N-I-E-L-A. Nice. Yeah. Kamiela. Kamiela. So uh, do you have any questions? Let's give her a round of applause for uh, her. Thank you. Thank you. That is really hot. Uh, maybe clap down there too. Yeah, so um, uh, any, any questions? I'll, I'll, I'll try to facilitate. I just have a quick uh, recommendation. Uh, Bill Barr, Real Time, uh, new episode began last night. They discussed practically everything you have been discussing, uh -huh. meaning that we are so distracted by his tweets yeah. that the, the Koch brothers or the Koch brothers are actually... It's Koch brothers, brothers, but I like calling them Koch brothers. They're focused on actually changing the yeah. So basically, he's trying to say, "Oh, we're um, you're getting distracted by Trump's nuttiness." Yeah. Well, well, yeah. Well, real things are, are, are happening. Yeah. I mean, it, it, uh, yeah. It's, I have, yeah. I have two things to say about yeah, that. Yeah. Well, yeah. I have more than two things. Um, <laughs> I would say anything that Trump is doing, especially if it's a policy or something that is impacting people and is, is going to lead to people suffering, it's never a distraction. Yeah. And I am, uh, I'm not saying that that's what you're saying, right. but I feel like that yeah. argument is often used in that context, yes. and it needs to stop, because that is the height of cynicism. And, and it, again, it builds into that, that notion that these things are at odds, that we can't pay attention to what this yes. lunatic is doing in the White House, and mobilize and organize on multiple issues. So the notion that those two things are at odds, again, absurd. Um, yeah, I think it's because we need to connect the idea of, of, of how organizing works, which is a narrative and the stories we tell about ourselves actually can connect all of us together so that we can move, right? So that we can act. And so, you know, there's people are going to fulfill different roles, right? There's going to be people who are going to mind the Twitter. They're going to pay attention to the Twitter, talk back, organize around the Twitter. Yeah. And then there's going to be the people who are probably more better served for, you know, on the ground kind of organizing. So right. I, think, I think we can have both. Totally, both. totally. Yeah, and I mean, I, yeah, I want to stress that, like, when when we're talking about um, Trump promoting, promoting racism or Trump, you know, pushing forward a policy that's going to have real reper repercussions for people, we need to be paying attention. When it comes to him... Uh, misspelling things on Twitter, just proving the fact that he's not an intelligent person. Uh, 
that can be distracting if we're just focusing on that. Yeah. You know, and it's unnecessary because it's like we already know. We know that, you know, like let's move on. Let's, you know, energy needs to be, we have limited energy. Yeah. Back there. Um, so thank you again. This is awesome. I think within the context of a true democracy, the marginalized majority would absolutely be able to accomplish all these wonderful things that we're talking about. But I'm curious what your response is to uh, the legacy structures yeah. that have been established to disenfranchise that same majority vis-a-vis yeah. -vis the, the Senate, for example, mm -hmm. where votes matter more in Midwestern states that have a larger black population, things like that. Totally. How do you respond when you may not necessarily feel that that changed? Yeah, so the question is essentially, um, you know, the the notion that the marginalized majority can have power is great if we sort of assume that America is this meritocracy, is this egalitarian place, but what about all this institutional and infrastructural, you know, baked in crap? Um, like, yeah, so, in, and gerrymandering comes to mind. You know, we're talking about a constant uh, assault and attack on um, the voices of the marginalized. I, I guess my response would be twofold. One is that I think if more people are aware of these assaults and how direct and obvious they are, like this move to disenfranchise voters, it's just so transparent. Uh, I think that is a big part of, of the problem is the awareness because it's hopefully going to then translate into mobilizing and demanding that our local representatives and above take action and resist this. Um, the other piece of it is something that I just left my mind. Uh, it happened to me. It didn't happen to me. Yeah, yeah. Ooh. No? Yeah. No. Yeah, it'll probably come back. Do you have things to say? Yeah, I was just going to say, like, you know, we have to row this boat while we're patching it up, like while we're fixing it, right? So I feel like that's what we have to hold. You know, on the one hand, yes, you know, voting rights has been gutted. Um, the two party system is still not working for us. You know, there's so many things structurally. And let's work on that. But also, real life is happening, right? So how are we, I think we can do both. Oh, I just remembered what it was. Yes. Okay. So um, during Occupy Wall Street, Wall Street, I was working on a article where I was exploring the feasibility of like a massive labor strike and like what's the what's the feasibility of it? What's the legality of it? So I called up this longtime um, labor uh, lawyer who had been, you know, union rep. Uh, and, and worked in that, you know, worked in that field for, for decades. And I was like, okay, so like, is this legal? Like, can this work? You know, because of course, like, if a bunch of people, like, are they going to risk being fired? Like, what's the recourse? And uh, I felt like he was willfully not responding to my question. We kept going around in circles, and he was like, basically, what he was trying to say was that law follows power. Yeah. And I mean that both obviously in terms of like, if it's a handful of extremists who are pushing the terms of the conversation, it's gonna go that way. But that, you know, law is not some sort of inherently egalitarian thing. It's practiced by human beings and it exists in the system that is already profoundly not, um, that's already so bigoted, right? Yeah. Uh, and so what he was saying is like, well, yeah, no, maybe it's not legal now across the board. But if everyone is, if there is a majority of people demanding, if there's a majority of people who are organizing consistently, the law will follow that. Yeah. And so I guess that just comes to mind in terms of like, yeah, it's going to be a fight, but if we sort of recognize that our demands, the, the cross-section of what the many demands that we share, 
uh, if we recognize that and push forward, law and power will follow. Yes. Question right there? Oh, yeah, question comment. <coughs> but, excuse me, I, uh, I do organizing for a living, so I understand what that is. But, and as such, I teach uh, the civil rights movement, particularly the Montgomery bus boycott, quite often. Just wanted to throw in there the mix, I think, of talking about how you sustain this, right? Mm -hmm. So, Rosa Parks' piece, well, I'm glad it was heartened to hear you point that out because it is an unfold part of the She's 42, exactly. So, and it's studied at the Highlander Institute with Miles Horton and Edie Nixon and others. But the other part of that is that when I teach that, I say, how long did the Montgomery Bus Boycott last to people? And they say, two weeks, two weeks, a month. It was 383 days. Yeah, um, it was like over so, a year. So it was over a year. Yeah. It was that walking to work, organizing sophisticated carpools. It was built on what labor does, but is on retreat now, but urban organizing. And yeah. Chomsky writes eloquently about that, that you can throw a punch, and the system is designed to absorb it. It's a, it's a rope reduction, right? I mean, so, and you can throw three punches, but the problem with protests and marches is they have to be connected to an ongoing structure. Yes. The field of having candidates uh, come out of that, I think, is great, but that was almost an unintended consequence mm -hmm. in some ways. No one planned that to it, but the idea is what happened, you asked about intersectionality, what's the better word? It's called solidarity, right? It's what Solidarność in Poland was born out of unions and overthrew the Polish government like in a... But I mean, but, but the Poles are struggling now, so, but, but nonetheless, but, but, but that's to be, sustainability, I guess. Yeah, but, but with all due respect, yeah. um, I wouldn't connect Solidaridad with intersectionality because the history of the labor movement has been extremely racist and anti-woman. So I, I would, I, I mean, even though women and, and people of color have also organized in labor. Does that make sense? So I just, you know, I, I get it. We, we're not going to go into an argument right no, no, now, no, no. but I, I just, I, I just want to throw that out there that, you know, I appreciate you giving us more information. I just want to have like a 30 second kind of response. It's just that we have to reclaim, we have to claim, we have to reclaim some of those words, I guess. Yeah, I, I think that's a good idea. Totally. Totally. Like if we want to say solid, then there's a thing about, here, I'm, you know, I don't mean to, to just sort of be it needing to be a back and forth, but I, there is something about we need to create a culture that is accessible. And to me, we need to figure out what the words, what the words mean, what the, why they're loaded, and if we need to in fact, you know, use new words. So if we want to say solidarity, sometimes, you know, labor movement words, sometimes I don't use it because people don't understand it. You know, and I think that's, I think if anything, what I'm getting from your book is we need, we are the majority and we need to figure out what narratives we need to create in order to tell of ourselves that story that we are the majority. Right, and, and to reinstill them with the appropriate meaning so that yes. everyone, so that the people who have been historically marginalized recognize themselves, can make common cause with yeah. those, with those concepts that have been, um, not that warm and welcoming yeah. historically. Because I'll, I'll be honest, you know, I left the labor movement. This is what I, so, so the, if, if you hear any anger coming from what I'm saying, is because I was in she's an angry woman. I am. <laughs> but because, you know, me and my friends who were, who were in our 20s, hotshot directors of an 85,000 member union, we all left within a year because we did not feel that the leadership was truly fulfilling what they thought they were trying to do, which is to change and adjust to the realities of the labor market. 
right, and of power. And as you know, we have still been degrading in our union membership in the percentage of the workforce. So, you know, my anger is not toward, directed toward you in particular, but it's just in general, there is a huge disconnect between those who are on the left, who are still holding whatever the left institutions of powers are, to, to the people that we are dealing with right now, which is people like you and me, right? Mm -hmm. So anyway, I, I, I just want to kind of throw that about the Well, it's important to unpack what we mean by solidarity. Yeah. You know, it's not, it, it, it's a powerful word, but it doesn't inherently speak to, it, no. it's not, it's not uh, doing the same work as when you say intersectionality. Sometimes, we, it depends. Yeah, yeah. You're saying No, no, to, uh, to your point about uh, expressive protest and making things more fun and social and interesting in that way, there was a great New York Times Daily this week about the ACLU and about comparing them to the NRA and taking a lead from the NRA's platform because the NRA, from the outside, looks like a fear-mongering group. From the inside, they make narrative pieces yeah. to make it feel fun to be oh, part yeah. of the NRA. The NRA. And the ACLU is saying, like, well, we've got to modify. We've got to make it fun. Yeah. We've got to make it social to make people want to just like enjoy being part of this action. Right. Yeah. Because it's such a like a light bulb moment. <laughs> yeah, like yeah, so she's bringing up that his, you know, historically something like uh, the NRA, like there's popular like from the outside it looks like fear mongering institution, but internally they're they're creating these really powerful narratives and making it like fun to be engaged and a part of it. So, you know, an organization like the ACLU, these progressive organizations, like we need to recognize that strong storytelling and fun and connectivity and focusing on social social connections yeah. uh, and that kind of important thread work, it's vital. You know, it's vital to sustaining movements. Um, yeah. like culture and art is important. Yes. I know. I mean, yeah. uh, do, do you see, when I think about the NRA, I think about these like viral photos of like really petite blonde women who are wearing like tight clothing and like have like a gun in their, in their waistband. Or their purse. <laughs> or in their purse and they're, it's like, Nothing gets between me and my gun, you know. Well, I don't know what she, whatever she's saying, yeah. and then like of course, you know, logic like inevitably on the the people who don't like it are like, um, look at she's such a clown, and then like the people who care about, you know, guns, they're like she's awesome, like. Yeah. But that's what it is, right? That's like that's like part of the NRA culture is to be like, I'm a lady and I can make a pink gun, you know. And it was they sell pink guns. Yeah. Like that's culture. That's like yeah. art and culture and design and, and tell stories about um, growing up shooting with your grandfather. Growing up shooting with your grandfather. No, totally. Right. So we need to figure out what that is for us if, if we're on the marginalized majority side. Right? Yeah. No, I think we're doing it. We just yeah. also people people in yeah, I think people who are heads of these organizations need to be, you know, being more mindful of that. Yeah. Also. And inviting the right people in to tell the stories. I think um, so. Hire me. Yeah. <laughs> I have some other friends that you should hire as well. Yeah, I actually, you. yeah, I like, I, I, you know, a, a few colleagues in my, uh, colleagues of, of, of mine and, and I, right after the election, started an organization called Speech Act, which, you know, focuses on teaching storytelling and narrative to social justice organizations and nonprofits. Mm. And this is not new. There are other organizations that have been doing this kind of work, but we need more of it, right? Uh, because a lot of times, especially when we've been working in the trenches for so long, again, we burn out. Yes. Uh, or we, we're just so tired of, of kind of reiterating the mission, or we're already so bought in that we forget yeah. the, the stories. We forget yeah. the reason, the emotional evocative reasons behind uh, why we're here and why it matters so much for us to, to spread our stories. 
to, to connect us, right? Like the brains were already out there. We just need to recognize ourselves as part of this this broader collective, as a, as a political force to be reckoned with. I think I think the left and progressives right now, and uh, the the soon to be progressives that just don't know it yet. Um, yeah, we 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 have historically kind of been on the on the sidelines. Uh, what do I mean by that? Not on the sidelines as in not protesting, not engaging, but kind of this sense that we don't have power. Yeah. This historical sense that, that, you know, because we have been historically so disenfranchised that we sort of come to the table sometimes, I think, already counting ourselves out. Um, and it's and it's just sort of this knee-jerk reaction that I think I think we can do better. Yeah. Up here and then over here. Well, you know, I'm having discussions with my friends on Facebook now. There's the status quo Democrat who doesn't want any movement, who's real happy and I was willing to play that game because I thought the most radical act I could do was elect a woman president. Yeah. But you know, the momentum is with socialism right now. Yeah. And the college kids, I'm talking to kids out of Harvard right now, nobody on these elite campuses is thinking anything but socialism. Right now. Yeah. And so we're having this discussion, because I'm a little bit older than you guys, about the soccer moms and how the soccer mom vote, a power vote, a power female vote, mm -hmm. how that's modulating. And now we've got this divisiveness in the party some of my friends call it the yoga vote. Mm -hmm. I call it wine mom, mm -hmm. right? Who are not willing to give up their, their democratic comforts, who are still on Wall Street, doing Wall Street the way Wall Street you know, was built to run, mm -hmm. and who aren't thinking with the momentum of some of these uh, elections protests and some of these. And also, you know, part of this device and this is when you get into the machine and now Cortez is being labeled as anti-Semitic, mm -hmm. okay? Out of nowhere. And I go to the gym today, and some guy comes up and says, oh, no, she's anti-Semitic. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. I, yeah. Because the machine has taken over. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. So basically, kind of, she's she's recognizing and pointing out that, you know, uh, there's something of a shift or, or you know, this, this question of what's happening right now where, you know, maybe we, we, a lot of us were at this point where we thought, well, voting for a female president is the most radical act to like, well, what are we seeing now? It seems like there's more of, more the support for like socialism and that is a movement rather than this more establishment, uh, Democratic Party, um, and also touching on, you know, these different voting contingents like the soccer moms uh, and, and who are they now. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think what we're seeing is the obvious tension that comes out of the realization that the establishment Democratic Party, uh, while obviously quite different from the Republican Party, still, when you look at the party platform, is so far right of what the majority of Americans want. Uh, so it, it's just a problem. It's yeah. a real problem. And so the Democratic Party needs to step up. Yeah. Like fast, <laughs> because I mean I think we're seeing that divide happening now um, more and more. Yeah, what's you know where where are the the whole this whole talk right is basically about reframing where the majority's interests are, and what we're saying is is we need to start talking about how Democrats and Republicans are actually center right. You know, reside no there, and there there is no yeah. oppositional exactly. And yeah. so I think that the, the rise of the sort of democratic socialist uh, movements. I know in LA, it's it's been a growing um, chapter, the DSA, um, oh, and then right. Alexandria. I know, and the fact that you know the question of Palestine always gets uh, gets potential elected officials in trouble who might come from yeah who might come from a different background because it's like the weird third rail, like you can't say anything about. Supporting Palestinian people's human rights, or that be called 
anti-Semite. An anti-Semite. I mean, it just goes from zero to sixty yeah. on that. Yeah. You know, um, so that's just really unfortunate. And we just have so much work to do. I have prejudices around socialists. Okay, why? Even though I consider myself probably a democratic socialist. Yeah. Why? Um, it's usually just white dudes that really make me feel alienated and <laughs> reinforce the patriarchy. I mean, like, I'm not just like... I hear you there. That's why you vote for Sanders. Yeah, I mean, people, some, some progressives didn't vote for Sanders because of that, you know? So, it's just hard. I voted for Sanders. I mean, what are we doing, you guys? we got to figure this out, you know? So, I feel like we need to address these... We need to address these things, and otherwise, I mean, the most logical people who should be all all together and on each other's sides, we are being divided because yeah. we've been we've been told to be divided, you know. And so we're this is part of the undoing. Totally. And I mean, I think a lot about you know coming of age and being reluctant to identify as a feminist. Uh, you know, I grew up in the South, and you know there was a lot of uh, like apolitical, being apolitical, being colorblind, being the sort of like that's the polite and most neutral and most welcoming kind of thing that you could be. Um, and it took, you know, it just takes recognizing that um, feminism exists and the Black Lives Matter movement exists because what is happening is that we live in a country in which if you are a woman, if you are black, if you are a minority, you live in a radically different country. You are paid differently. You have a shorter lifespan. Your access to resources. I mean, so... In, in my mind, with such fundamental things that are still so apparently wrong and that need to be addressed, like people just need, like, people in power, people who are running for office, they need to be addressing these core things. Yeah. Otherwise, no vote. Just, it just, it, there's just such fundamental things that need to happen. Mm, so much to do right here. Um, hi, thanks for being here. Uh, I was, I was just uh, interested in your. Uh, the, the, what both of you brought up about like burnout, mm -hmm. and particularly something I think about a lot is working within institutions to create change versus outside them. And I know like both are necessary, and then you have to figure out like where your role is. But how have you like how did you, for example, decide to quit the labor union? <laughs> how have you decided like I don't know. A lot of times I feel like. Yeah, the angry brown woman who everyone's yeah. like, I'm, I'm on a call, like, the college campus right now, and I'm like, hey, I'm really mad all the time. <laughs> and everyone's like, shut up. So, yeah. so I don't, I'm just confused. How do you decide where your role is or how not to feel mm -hmm. hopeless? Yeah. What so makes you not feel hopeless? You know, I mean, like, yeah. um, yeah, I mean, you sort of already referred to like, you know, it's, it is both and, you know, and and I talk in the book about uh, immediately after the election, there was a, a group of folks who came together. Some of us knew each other, but a lot, a lot of us were strangers to each other. And uh, we all wanted to take part in some, you know, really groundbreaking action that would be easily replicable across the country, kind of like Occupy Wall Street, that, you know, it was like, no to this election, no to these, uh, you know, just a big no. And there was so much fervor and energy and, you know, really seasoned activists who were part of, like, the WTO protests, who were part of Occupy Wall Street. And all of us were down, you know, like, short of a few people, we were, like, ready to be arrested. You know, we, ha we had those conversations, like, you know. And I talk about how it fell apart. Um, so basically what happened is while we all had such energy, there emerged this divide. We were on board for this action, but when it came time to write, to come up with our uh, platform statement, 
all of these questions about what we were, the words we were willing to use, democracy, America, American, using the American flag, for instance, there were such spirited divides, right? And, and in the end, we decided to part ways. And I talk about that for a variety of reasons, but one of which is, while it was disappointing, there have been offshoots and a bunch of different people have now taken part in different actions and they do have different approaches and that's okay and it's, it's still moving us forward. But also, um, for me it was a formative moment because, well first of all, so, so it's not a failure, right? Yeah. Like what on the surface might look like a failure, it's not. Um, but then also I feel like we really need to be willing, from my perspective, be willing to take back the meaning of those, those words. Uh, and fight for them. Like patriotism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. And I think it's, that's very it's, important. For it's us. so uncomfortable. And when I, you know, those those arguments that we were having, a lot of times I feel like asking, like, what does it mean when we say democracy? What does it mean when we say American? You know, the 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 fracturing that was going on was legitimate, right? It's like those words have been wielded, you know, in ways against so many people in a way that like they're too corrupted. We, you know, and I respect that opinion. I think there's a lot of validity to it, but. I don't, you know, for, from my standpoint, if we don't t try to agree on those terms, yeah. we already know what happens. You know, a handful of extremists takes takes them over and tries to use them as their emblems. Right, to say you're an American. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, you know, in terms of addressing burnout, I mean, I burnt out mostly because, you know, I was on my own little journey yeah. of figuring out what made me happy. And, you know, um, I had a lot of responsibility in a very politically fractious, is that a word, yeah. um, environment of the labor union. It's a very big, powerful labor union. Um, and it just didn't feel like it was a place for me anymore because I didn't look up to the people that were above me anymore. I was a director at the end. So, um, yeah. So but that's what happened. And, I, and, and, and there, there was a part of me that thought, I always knew from being a high school student government nerd, that it would be a foregone conclusion that I work in politics in some capacity. It wasn't until college activism that I realized what my politics were, right? And then I was like, okay, then I'm gonna go to grad school and I'm gonna work at something, and it ended up being the labor movement, right? But it, 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 in my head, that was the path that was laid out in front of me that was the natural path that most people assume, right? Where you become a, a yeah. professional. And I think what was scary but exciting was if I were to drop doing that kind of work, but um, honor the more creative side of my skills, which is not to say I don't use my business skills at all or organizing skills. I use my organizing skills all the time in what I do now, which is why I have a career. But I wanted to honor my creativity more. And now I would say in, go, in, the, in the spirit of not calling things failures, yeah. That as much as sometimes I'm like, oh, I wish I like started doing comedy in like college, you know, like the way a lot of like people are like, oh, I've always been a comedy nerd. I wish I did that because maybe I would have gotten farther with my craft. But I wouldn't be who I am without having had that experience of working in the trenches in the labor movement, in the labor movement, door knocking, all of it, all the rhetoric that we did. You know, it all feeds into my understanding of the world, and then therefore. Um, my role and the skills I have in trying to talk back at it, <laughs> right, as a comedian or as a convener or a storyteller or um, an organizer of artists, essentially, now is what I do. So, um, yeah, yeah, that journey of like finding your voice. Yes. And, and you know, when I'm talking about this group and the way we split, but then we're doing different actions, it's like I had to travel that journey of feeling like it was a failure at first and then recognizing that, like, oh, what happened was this organic 
gravitating towards each other, the, the people who are like, yes, this is how I see this too, let's move forward with our action, which isn't in opposition, really, to these other groups also moving forward and doing necessary and vital work, you know? And, and I think we put a lot of pressure on ourselves um, to like do the most good, right? Like I need to be doing the thing that is the most effective, the most functional right now, um, and obviously being practical and thinking about having real impact is important, but I think we, we discount the importance of where is this sustainable? Yeah. Where, where am I going to be able to feel like my voice has room and space, and where am I going to be recharged and refueled? You know, and that said, obviously you need to be able to like step away sometimes and like read a, you know, trashy book, watch trashy TV, go walk in the park, because you just can't keep doing this stuff 24 hours a day. Yeah. But um, you know there are ways in which you can be part of protest and part of change that still are refueling, refueling you. And so to just be like aware of emotionally what's what's taking too much from you, I think is really healthy. Yeah. I think we have time for maybe just one more, and then and then yeah. Uh, so you talked about the protagonist that you read as a young woman, young girl. Who are your authors and protagonists that you look to today? Oh man, who are, who are the protagonists and authors that I look to today? Um, oh man, this is rough because there are so many and also I'm on the spot. So You like, recommended a couple books earlier. Yeah, yes, uh, yes. Thank you. Um, I listen to that. So L.A. Kaufman's direct action is fantastic in terms of like, you know, she really digs into um, the history of protest movements. And you know what I was talking about in terms of like surfacing the real history and, and instrumental actors who tend to go totally unnoticed or unremarked on. And she she really unpacks that. Um, yeah, and Steve Phillips's uh, Brown is New White is obviously great. Uh, I'm also an avid fiction reader, so um, I mean, Daisy Smith uh, is fantastic. Uh, what else have you been reading lately? I don't know, we can talk about it. I don't want to like, books. yes, we should talk about books. So many books. So many books. So, so many, yeah. Yeah, I can close out any particular way other than get oh, a book. Wait, uh, White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo, which Ooh. just came out. Is I, I just started reading it. It's so good. Um, yeah. All right. Uh, How do we do this book signing thing? Well, I think, uh, yeah, if you want to oh, buy. Yay! 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 Thank you for the thoughtful questions. Yeah, that was great. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.